Thank you, Margaret. That was beautiful. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Roxanne Borneman, and I'm a member of this congregation. I'd like to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. And I'd also like to make a special welcome to Pay Carter, who is with us here from the Eau Claire area, and she will be speaking later. Since 1870, the UU of Wausau has served as a vital voice for a liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people, just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Before I go on, we do have an announcement that I would like to make, and I would like to invite Ann Jefferson to come up, and Ann is going to be um, speaking briefly about a unique need that has come up regarding our work with our Afghani families. 
Other than always being nervous when I get in front of people up here, I'm really glad to be up here. As you all know, in the last month, our church, along with St. Anne's Catholic Church, has been helping the Senecai family. Father Fazal, Mother Shah Barama, and son Swabadun and Vassal get settled in Wasa. In the last week alone, about 60 refugees have showed up in Wasa, arrived here. Every new family needs at least $3,000 for their basic needs. When the Senecai family arrived, parishioners from St. Anne's quickly raised the entire 3000 And now it's our turn. A new family, two parents and a little boy, 21 months, born during the pandemic, just got here Thursday. We need to raise at least $2,000, hopefully today, for sure by the end of the week, to help them get started. A box labeled Afghan family is on the table in the atrium. Please put your cash or check, check made out to First UU with Afghan family in the memo line, in the box. For those of you watching today online, you can bring in or mail your donation to church or pay online on our donation site. Simply choose from the drop-down box, Afghan family. We have shown many, many times how we can step up right now for an immediate need in our community. I know we can do it again now. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to our church's newsletter, follow us on Facebook or Instagram for any updates. And with that, let us gather our hearts and our minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. I ask you to join with me in the singing of our opening hymn, number 86, Blessed Spirit of Life, Please Rise as You're Able.
please remain standing for our affirmation as we repeat together, love is the doctrine of this church, the quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge in freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. And please, let's share together our doxology. seated. This morning I want to share with you a story called The Tiny God by Becky Brooks. Once upon a time there was a little itty bitty very small tiny little god named Tiny. She lived her life hearing stories of the big gods and well let's face it she was jealous. She knew she needed to think of something kind of wonderful a special spark of an idea that would make her existence meaningful. After watching humans for a long time, she hit upon something that just might work. Something to make people think, yeah, that tiny's really got a good idea going. That was it. This was going to make her famous. Ready? Here it is. You are not alone. She took the form of a very light breeze and a voice so quiet that each person heard it only in their mind, and she said, you. People loved it. It was perfect, because who doesn't want to hear that? Pretty soon, Tiny was comforting people all over with it. You are not alone. Every evening, she took the form of the breeze and whispered it in people's minds. Until one day, she encountered someone who wasn't comforted by it at all. When Miriam heard Tiny's words in her mind, instead of feeling comforted, she felt agitated. Something was just kind of off about it. She kept saying it to herself over and over again. You are not alone. You are not alone. She tossed and turned, and she couldn't sleep. In the morning, she went to read the paper, and instead of skimming everything, she found herself drinking in every single story. She was only halfway through when she found herself crying. I am not alone, she said. I am connected to every one of these people. They live in my town and my country and my world. They love their children like I love mine. They're scared sometimes and so am I. They hurt like I hurt. I am not alone. I can help. Tiny was surprised. It hadn't occurred to her that someone might think of it that way. Tiny kept watch over Miriam to monitor this interesting development. Miriam and a coworker met online in a meeting and talked about how they hoped the Senate would pass a law. And Tiny noticed when Miriam wrote a letter to her senator about it right away. 
She noticed when Miriam turned in her grocery order that she bought a few extra things for her neighbor and left them with a colorful note on their porch. She noticed that Miriam had tears in her eyes when she joined her congregation's worship on her computer that morning and heard a favorite hymn through her small speakers. Miriam got out of her phone right away and made an extra donation to her congregation. She watched as Miriam wrote postcards to friend and family near and far, waved to the dog walkers who passed by her house, and strung up colorful lights in her living room window. But most importantly, Tiny noticed when Miriam received a phone call one evening from a friend she hadn't heard from in a long while. His voice was shaking. I'm having a hard time, he said. He started to tell her about his troubles, and he began to cry. Miriam got herself comfortable in her favorite chair. Take your time. I'll stay on the line with you. You are not alone. I am here. I am here. Tiny heard those words like an echo in her mind. You are not alone. I am here. You are not alone. I am here. Repeat after me. You are not alone. I am here. In that moment, Tiny knew that she was nothing without Miriam's hands, heart, and spirit. And she knew that's what she wanted. What the world needed more than anything was what Miriam had learned to give. So Tiny went to work, and instead of just spending her evenings spreading the gospel of, you are not alone, she spent her nighttimes doing it too, and her mornings, and her afternoons. And pretty soon, she was spending every moment doing it, until she became the breeze itself. And that is why there's no paintings of Tiny, no busts or holy books, just a breeze, a low voice, and many, many helping hands, loving hearts, and caring spirits. You can hear the echo if you listen carefully. You are not alone. I am here. When there are bottles of water left in the desert for those who risk their life to cross it, you are not alone. I am here. At the bedside of a dying man, you are not alone. We are here. In the jailhouse, in the sanctuary, you are not alone. We are here. Separate and together, you are not alone. We are here. May it be so. And that was our story for this morning. Today, very excitedly, I'm happy to announce that our kindergartners and sixth graders actually have a choice this morning. They are welcome to stay in the sanctuary with their families to enjoy worship together, or they can head downstairs into the RE Commons for our first in-person elementary group. Please, I'm going to invite you now to bless those who are here and joining us from afar, and those who are about to leave the sanctuary with May peace surround you. The words are printed in your order of service. for our offertory, the mission and ministry of the UU Wausau is made possible by your generous support to all of its friends and our members here. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back 
of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit card or debit card. Thank you very much for your support. For a prayer this morning, I selected a piece from the hymnal, which struck me as very appropriate because the words are those of Thich Nhat Hanh, who many of you know, after a very long and influential life, died two weeks ago. So I ask you to center your thoughts, find yourself in an attitude of prayer as you focus on these words. Let us be at peace with our bodies and our minds. Let us return to ourselves and become holy ourselves. Let us be aware of the source of being common to us all and to all living things, evoking the presence of the great compassion. Let us fill our hearts with our own compassion towards ourselves and towards all living beings. Let us pray that we ourselves cease to be the cause of suffering to each other with humility, with awareness of the existence of life 
and of the sufferings that are going on around us. Let us practice the establishment of peace in our hearts and on earth. Amen. And now, please take a minute to give thought to the joys and the concerns that you brought with you this morning and others brought with them. Amen. For our prayer hymn this morning, Margaret selected a familiar tune and familiar simple but profound words. You may remain seated for prayer hymn number 16. It is a gift to be simple. my volume okay? Can you hear me in the back? All right, great. So the reading that I chose this morning is by Kenny Wiley. Um, when I went to my very first GA, I went to a panel that he was on, and I was just very moved by what he said. If you frequently read the UU World, you've probably read an article by him. He uh, quite frequently writes for them. So, The first time my heart felt broken, I went to church. When my mom died, I went to church. When I failed a class, I went to church. When I failed a friend, I went to church. When I felt like I'd failed at life, I went to church. I didn't go asking for forgiveness. I didn't go asking for salvation. I went to church, a Unitarian Universalist church, to be reminded through hugs from friends awkward interactions with strangers, and inspired messages from leaders. That no matter what I felt, how down I felt, 
I still mattered. I still had worth. My God says, when you are enough, you are enough. Whomever you love, you are enough. Whatever your race or ethnicity, you are enough. Whatever your abilities, you are enough. Whatever your economic class, you are enough. Whatever your gender identity is, you are enough. Whatever you do for a living, you are enough. You are a human being, and you are enough. My God says this when we come together, when we listen deeply to one another and love one another. This, I believe, is the God of our faith. My minister in college started the prayer with the same words every Sunday. I don't remember most of it. I do recall, though, the used phrase, alone, together. We experience life through our own lenses, yet we don't have to go through it alone. I know too well the grieving loss of a parent is a long, exhausting road. I also know that walking alongside a friend can feel somehow even more taxing when they are mourning. Being there for friends is plain hard. It can be tough to work up the courage to talk with a newcomer. Yet I believe that in those public spaces that God or the spirit of life truly resides. It may go against prevailing American individualism to say that we need other people. We like to believe we can do everything on our own. I believe that the human spirit truly comes alive when we are challenged, prodded, and uplifted in community. In the days after my mom's death, I felt like hiding. Doing so would have been perfectly okay. I decided, though, to go to church. My friends went with me, and the community held me up, as well as my family. Being in community was harder than being alone. Yet, it was what I needed. I needed to sit in the sanctuary with my UU friends. I needed to sing those hymns and hear the voices of others. We don't have to go to service every Sunday, yet I do think we need to show up somewhere to some community. I believe that living out our faith requires interaction beyond our own lives. I believe it calls for community. I believe that's where God is. Through covenant with others, we reach God. We know we are enough, and we are made better. We strengthen our souls and increase our capacity for love and understanding.
So hello, my name is Pay Carter. I am a third year seminary student at Iliff School of Theology, set to graduate this June. I am also in candidate status with the UUA and go before the MFC this October. And in case you're wondering why I'm up here with vibrant blue hair, it is because I have found that it's much easier to find me after service when I have a different hair color. It also is fun because sometimes it starts trends in the congregation with older women that, are, that suddenly start having blue and purple hair. It's wonderful. Glad I could start a trend. So I thought this morning I would share with you some of my journey with faith, with God. And before I get started, actually, I want to say quickly, what a beautiful church you have. I was very excited. Last time I was here, I was in a different, different room, and of all the congregations that I have talked at and preached at, this is the first one that is way up high, so this is definitely a different angle that I am looking at than I normally have. Normally it's a step, and this thing is way up here, and with a full organ. It's beautiful. All right. <laughs> so my relationship with God as a small child was pretty much non-existent, which is surprising because my dad is from Iowa and grew up Methodist, and my mother is from England, grew up Church of England. However, when my mother moved to the U.S. with my dad to start a family, in her own words, the amount of megachurches in Texas and the TV evangelist really freaked her out. <laughs> compared to Church of England, so she didn't want to have any of it. So I was not baptized, nor did we go to church on Sunday. So my knowledge of God was the little snippets I would hear from other five, six-year-olds at my school, which was that God seemed to be this mysterious, magical force in the universe that if you were good, right, you could ask or pray for things, and sometimes he would make them come true. So when I look back at that time, there's two distinct things I remember praying about. One was going to bed almost every night praying for a magic carpet because Aladdin came out and what six-year-old does not want a magic carpet, right? And the other time was when my mom received a call saying that my grandfather, my favorite grandfather, was dying. And while they were booking the flights and trying to arrange this last minute flying out of the country, I remember skipping rope outside, asking God to not let my father die, or my grandfather die. Which unfortunately, neither of those wishes came true, so I just figured God just wasn't a thing for me. And then when I was eight, we moved to Malaysia. My dad got a job overseeing a new sales territory. And all of a sudden, right, it's a very different, different environment going from Texas to Malaysia. So all of a sudden, I was immersed in all these colors and these sounds and this beauty. It seemed pretty magical. And I really thought, mm, maybe I didn't need that magic carpet. <laughs> and it was here that my parents decided to immerse me in religion. We went everywhere. We went to magical synagogues, and we climbed stairs after stairs, which I was not thrilled about at the time, to get to these beautiful temples, right? These shrines built into caves and on top of mountains. They took me to festivals like Deep Valley, Chinese New Year, Hungry Ghost and Mooncake Festival, and I was just amazed, even as a young child. I was hearing things about God and gods and names like Krishna and all these Allah and all these other names. 
And it was really eye-opening even at the time. However, I do recall looking back and getting frustrated with the prayers that would interrupt uh, me watching Power Rangers because it was a Muslim, very Muslim country, and so they broadcasted the prayers five times a day, and my little child was like, this is cool, there's all these, all these big idols and religion, but it's interrupting my Power Rangers. That <laughs> priorities, right, as, a, as an eight-year-old. Then my parents decide to move to England, and I went to St. Ian's with, which is a very Church of England school, so all of a sudden I went to seeing and hearing about different gods and expression to prayers every Monday during assembly, going to church once a week during the school, which my parents then started taking me on Sundays because they got tired of hearing from the minister at the, at the school why we weren't seen in Sunday service. But then, a year later, I went to an all-girls grammar school. And this is one thing that I really connect to my UU faith, is that we were taught to question everything. And that included the Bible and God. We learned in history class about how much the Bible was changed because the common people didn't know how to read English, let alone understand Latin. And so how the Bible was changed over time to suit those in power. We also learned about King Henry VIII forming the Church of England because he wanted his wedding annulled. So that was my relationship and understanding of God, was that it was used to have control over people and to suit personal wants and needs. It was used to justify persecution and murder. It was used to make poor people poorer. And and that was, was my understanding. And then, after living in Malaysia going to a school where you get to question God and the Bible, and then we moved to the Midwest, where diversity <laughs> and questioning God is, is not acceptable. It was a very hard adjustment. Um, I remember one, one moment specifically where I really made myself known as a non-Christian is when September 11th happened. And in every classroom, there was those big, honking, huge TV carts, right, blaring and blasting the news. And I was in Honors Algebra 2. That's how specific I remember. And somebody made the comment, we should kill all the Muslims. They all deserve to die. And being my sarcastic teenage self, right, teenagers are all full of attitude, I said, isn't that like, shouldn't we kill all the Americans because the amount of serial killers we have? And it quickly got turned on me. Do I believe in God? Nope. Do I go to church on Sunday? Nope. All these nopes to the questions they were asking, and it got turned on me that I was going to hell. And back to my sarcastic self, I was like, you know, is there a McDonald's on the way? Because that sounds like an awfully long trip, and I might get hungry on the way. Yeah, that was me. And thankfully, I was saved by the bell. But the, yep, yep, that bell, it always comes at the right time, right? And, but incidences like this continued. I, I saw a lot of religious intolerance, and I felt incredibly out of place. I felt suffocated. I felt like there was this big hole in my life because I had grown up, right, those formative years 
of people coming together, children playing that were Muslim, Christian, atheist, Buddhist, I mean, every, every, almost every faith you can think of. Coming together and playing and working, that was what I knew. And then I come here, and the only option, the only acceptable option is Christianity. And if you are anything else, it's not going to go well for you. And so I developed this strong aversion to Christianity, to God, to the Bible. I had this horrible taste in my mouth anytime I had to say any of those things, anytime that I heard people talking about it, anytime it came up, it, oof, it was not a good feeling because of what I had learned, what I was experiencing and seeing. Ugh, yeah. But about mm, five years later, I was working full-time and going to school full-time because my need to succeed thought that that would be a very good idea to, as a young adult. And I was stressed, as you can imagine. Now, being in Malaysia, right, and going to temples and seeing Buddhist monks, I heard that meditation worked, right? So I Googled, all right, where can I go to a Buddhist group, right? Where can I go meditate? And uh, Fox Valley Unitarian Universalist came up. And I started poking around the website and reading. And I was like, you can go there? And you can, you can, be, you can believe in anything? You could be atheist, you can be Christian, you could be Buddhist? Like, this seems too good to be true. I don't believe it. No, in America, this, this can't. In the Midwest, there can't be a place like this. And then the moment I walked through the door and I saw this huge mural in the RE room with symbols of different religions, I didn't even have to go to the service. I was like, this is going to be my place. This is, this is going to be my home. I never actually went to a, one of the meditation groups at all. And lately, later found out that meditation is just not my thing. I actually had a teacher at Iliff who was a Buddhist monk but got kicked out because he couldn't meditate correctly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was very excited when I learned that. I'm like, you rebel, you go. And so over time, I was like, I really love our UU faith. I'm going to go to seminary and be a minister. Like, that is going to be my thing. But then I started looking at seminaries, and, and I was like, wow, there's a lot of God in here. There's a lot of Bible study. Like, my UU faith and my upbringing is like, gather all the knowledge, learn about all the things. And so I was like, well, maybe, maybe this is not something that I would be able to do. But the UUA referred me to ILIF, so I go to ILIF School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. And... I found out, wow, they're on the forefront of seminaries for social justice issues. But it's still a Methodist seminary, so I show up thinking, like, oof, this might be a hard time. But it opened my eyes in so many ways. I got to take classes such as storytelling and narrative justice. Uh, one of the ones that I'm hoping to take, but I don't think I'm going to be able to, is God and Tupac, because that just sounded like an amazing class. Um, mysticism and activism, I got to learn about indigenous culture and worldviews. So, yeah, I had to do, you know, a Bible class or a theology class, but I got to choose. And those options are awesome. 
I get to take a, ba- a Bible and AI class, artificial intelligence in the Bible next quarter. Who would have thought that those two could go together, but Iliff makes it happen. <laughs> but I was nervous when I started because I thought, you know what, here I am going to a Christian seminary and I'm probably going to end up with people trying to convert me. That was my mindset when I went. And I was very adamant in every class in the discussion because it was a hybrid, it's a hybrid school. So you take classes online and then a week you go, for a week you go to Colorado and do in person. And I was very adamant about identifying myself at every opportunity as a non-Christian UU. <laughs> I felt that that needed to be said. Let's get it out of the way, all right? I, I, like, I'm getting that out of the way. But I realized as quarter went quarter how amazing it was to see people of different Christian denominations coming together and being very passionate about social justice issues and figuring out together how they can address it in their own faith. And I later found out that ILIF is jokingly the the seminary that pagans go to (laughs) because they are so welcoming. And one thing that, that I still struggle with, though, is how many denominations there are in the U.S. and how they are all structured differently. Does anybody else struggle with that? I do. It's like I was in England, and it was Protestant, Church of England, and then you had the Catholics, and that was pretty much all I knew. And then here it's like United Church of Christ, Lutheran, Methodist. Like There's so many options, and I don't understand how they all work. But here I am learning. And I realized, too, that the courses that I had to take, right, the subjects, the categories, were very similar to our UU principles and provided an opportunity for a free and responsible search for truth. So not only was I part of a faith that allowed me to ask questions, right, all the questions, now I'm going to a seminary that also lets me ask all the questions, and that is okay. And I slowly found myself being able to use God language again. I got to the point where church was okay. Up until then, um, whenever I explained UU and the congregation that I went to, I was very also adamant that it was not a church because I struggled with church, right? As a lot of, I think, uh, people that come from church trauma, the God language can be a bit difficult at times. But I found myself being able to use it, being able to look at assignments through a Christian lens. I no longer felt the need unless it's very applicable to openly and very loudly proclaim that I am not a Christian. Um, But there was one thing that really stuck out to me last summer. And I think with within UU, and I think people that are very social justice warriors, is that there's the reaction to when we witness horrible things in our community, that we can't respond with thoughts and prayers, right? We have to take actions. We have to do, we have to make policy changes, right? And we, we struggle sometimes with thinking that well, people don't want to address it, they just want to pray about it, right? They want to pray to a God to intervene. But I took this class last summer, a spiritual justice praxis, 
that was focused on the spiritual foundations for social justice. I did not realize at the time that it was actually a full class on praying in response to social justice. So I kind of thought, well, maybe I will drop this class because praying as an answer in response to social justice issues does not really appeal to me. However, it was very, very, very eye-opening because I learned that prayers for change may not be as empty, right, as sometimes they see. That it is a way for people to ask and process how they are struggling with everything that is wrong with the world. We are very lucky, I think, with our UU faith that our faith, our UUA, provides us with the resources that we need when, when we have questions, right? When we want to respond to some sort of social justice issue, we have all these resources available at our fingertips. We can go and search if we want to see about police brutality and Black Lives Matter, if we want to go and learn more about accessibility and inclusion for people with disabilities, if we want to figure out how to be more welcoming to queer folk. We have those resources. But there's a lot of congregations in other faiths that don't. And everywhere we look, everywhere we look, there's injustice. I can't remember the last time I watched the news and there wasn't some sort of news story on something that happened that was wrong, right? Oppression happens, it's everywhere we look, every aspect of society. People that can't, ha they don't have access to free and adequate health care. People that are going hungry because they don't have the money to pay for food. Homeless people, right, that can't afford a house. So these things are happening, and they're not happening on the, just on the other side of the country, right? They're happening in our communities. And people and congregations have a limited time, right? We can't tackle all the things all the time. So when we want to take action, what do we do? How do we do that? And like I said, for some people, that's praying because they don't have the resources. And they can feel the same anger and the frustration that we feel, but we have our faith to lean on. And so this class that I took, it had a book called Embracing the World, Praying for Justice and Peace by Dr. Jane Venard. I highly recommend it. Uh, this woman was a adjunct professor at ILIF, so the, it's the school I go to. And the opening in the book was very, just hit me because she was talking about how she was asked to teach a class at ILIF about activism, right? And so she, in her whole life, had never been on the front lines. That's what she considered activism, was being on those front lines, which I'll note that was part of initially why I wanted to become a minister, because I say, you know, when you see, like, marches and parades and you see ministers getting arrested, those are the UU ministers. We are all about that change, right? And so she was talking about how she felt inadequate and how people in her congregation felt inadequate. And when preparing for teaching, when working on this book, she talked about how she pondered and prayed about her own experience and began to feel that there are people who felt the same way, that weren't on the front lines, but cared deeply 
for social justice and peace, and we're acting and speaking in quiet ways, not just through prayers, but parents teaching their children how to solve conflict, young children, or young adults, I mean, speaking out to their family at gatherings about prejudices, teenagers drawing close to protect a child from bullying, teachers telling the hard stories from the underside of history, librarians and booksellers standing firm against censorship, retired folks showing up faithfully in the neighborhood school reading program and the homebound stuffing envelopes soliciting funds for the city's homeless shelters. She wrote, maybe all these people were activists, blooming where they were planted, quietly doing the work of justice and peace. And so, like I mentioned, her book changed the, the way that I viewed prayer as an initial response to injustice. And I stopped assuming that other people had the same resources that I do and were choosing to pray over acting. And maybe instead of dividing us by prayers versus actions, we can try to build a bridge and provide resources to those who may not have them. Our faith calls us to address the things that make us uncomfortable. And that was God language for me for a really long time. And my faith in ILIF challenged me to address that, to figure out why and to be able to do that. And I'm very blessed for those experiences, and now I still identify as a non-Christian. But I've been changed And I can see the world a different way than I initially had. And it is something that is very, very beautiful. And I would like to encourage you to think about that. To think about things that challenge you and what our faith calls us to do. Right? It's all right. I'm clumsy. I drop things all the time. Seriously, I am. You know, that was one of the things when I first started preaching. I was so nervous. I was fumbling over my words. And I was just like, I am making all these mistakes. And somebody came up to me after service and they were like, thank you. Thank you for making mistakes. It is nice to see other people making mistakes, especially at the pulpit. And I was like, all right. Good. (laughs) All right. I feel better about stumbling over my words sometimes. And I was like up here and I'm like, all right, I can do this. This pulpit is high. I'm a little bit nervous, but here I am doing all right, I think. So back to the topic at hand. Um, I encourage you to think about what challenges us, what makes us uncomfortable, because it's easier to run, right? It's easier to avoid things. I avoided, I had this aversion to God and wanted nothing at all to do with God or sometimes people that believed in God. Um, And so reflect on that, because that's what our faith calls us to do. It really does. Um, And and if anybody has any questions or comments about their journey with God and God language, or has questions about dealing with things that are uncomfortable, because that is the one, one of the things I love coming to congregations and preaching about, especially when it comes to disabilities, is being in this safe community where where we can talk about what makes us uncomfortable. We can be here together. We can stumble. I mean that literally, because sometimes I do stumble over my own feet. But we can stumble together and pick each other back up, no matter how hard it is to find the words to express our emotions and what we are feeling. It is okay in our faith to make mistakes. So 
Please find me after service. I love talking to people, and this is my third service in person since COVID, so I am very excited to talk to people from a safe distance and with a mask on. And now if you would like to rise for our closing hymn as able. Hey, thank you for sharing your journey, meaningful lessons in your learning for all of us. Thank you, we appreciate it. For our sending hymn today, Please rise as you're able. Sing out together with me hymn number 100. I've got peace like a river. And remain standing for the benediction, please. I've got peace like a river, number 100.
So I chose words that are different from your benediction. Hopefully that is okay. I was told I could make those changes. Go in hope, for the arc of the universe is long and we can bend it towards justice. Go in courage, for together we have the strength to confront injustice in our daily lives and in the larger world. Go in peace and love, because a holy and generous love is both the reason and means by which we transform our lives. And if you could, remain seated during the postlude. Beautiful music, by the way. Mm -hmm. 